This is Salt and Spine. Black people have contributed as laborers forever anonymously in this country, as enslaved, and doesn't get credited enough, I mean, not just in food history, in any history. You cannot say that you are interested in American cooking, American cuisine, if you're not including Black foodways in that conversation. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's two guests, Marcus Samuelson and Osai Andalin. Marcus and Osai are two of the folks behind a new cookbook, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. First, we have Chef Marcus Samuelson, who has become a household culinary name, building his restaurant empire from Red Rooster in Harlem to now more than a dozen eateries around the globe. He's won multiple James Beard Awards and is a regular on food TV from winning both Top Chef Masters and Chopped All-Stars to hosting No Passport Required, his show with Vox Media's Eater. And of course, he's written several cookbooks and a New York Times bestselling memoir, Yes, Chef. For his latest book, The Rise, Marcus teamed up with James Beard-winning food writer Osai Endelin, whose wide-reaching work includes writings in The Washington Post, Time, and Food and Wine. She's also working on a forthcoming book focused on the systemic racism in American restaurants and dining culture. Now, in The Rise, Marcus and Osai bring together dozens of Black people from across the food industry, chefs, historians, activists, to help tell the story of Black cooks and the story of American cuisine. In these pages, we hear from folks like authors Michael Twitty, Jessica B. Harris, and Tony Tipton Martin, chefs like J.J. Johnson, Mashama Bailey, and the late Leah Chase, to activists, home cooks, farmers, publishers, and more. It's hard to summarize a work like this one, one that's so wide-ranging and yet also centers deeply personal stories. In short, it's a celebration of Black cooking, a rising class of new Black chefs and voices, and an effort to reclaim and recognize the contributions and talents of generations of Black cooks. I spoke with both Marcus and Osai separately about the rise, and we've edited the interviews together here for a better flow, but please note that we're not all in conversation together on today's show. Also, this episode, Salt and Spine Kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney took the rise for a ride making a big pot of crab curry with yams and mustard greens. That's later in this episode. And we've got two featured recipes from the rise for you to make at home. So let's jump right in. First, I talked with Marcus Samuelson about about his upbringing, his early culinary career, and what led him to creating this new cookbook, The Rise. Hi, Marcus. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, one of the podcasts that I've been listening to, and i um, very excited to be here. And when we mapped out The Rise, I'm like, it would be great to be on Salt and Spine. So that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. And yes, I'm thrilled to talk about your latest book, The Rise, which is beautiful. I've loved leafing through it recently and can't wait to cook from it. We always like to start with our guests by talking just a little bit more about you. I think many folks know your personal life story to some extent, but to give folks a taste of who you are before we talk more about the book specifically. So you were born in Ethiopia. Yeah, I know. I was born in, in, in the countryside of Ethiopia in a small village called Abragodana, which is... Um, you know, at this moment when we're speaking, Ethiopia is going through a lot, and um, I my heart goes out to everything that's happening in Ethiopia, and it's just, you know, you just want it to be peace, and, um, you know, it's just such a traumatic year already, 2020, so on, on top of that, to everything that's happening there, it's just, it's just uh, really sad, and I hope it 
get straightened out sooner the better. You know, I am, um, yeah, born there, was adopted at a very young age. We were, my mom and my sister and I, we had tuberculosis and um, she walked us into a hospital. Not only did she walk us to the capital, she walked us to a hospital and she passed away. And then um, we survived TB, but we were just three and five. My sister, my older sister, Linda, and a nurse at the hospital was kind enough to take us in. She had three kids of her own. And then eventually we stayed with her until she set us up with an adopted family in Sweden. Yeah. And so you move to Sweden when you're three with your sister. And at that point, I think as you're a child growing up in Sweden, food becomes like a pretty big part of your life. I mean, even on a day-to-day basis of like fishing with your, I know you've written before about going fishing with, with your dad and catching lobster and crayfish and smoking the fish. And then of course, your grandmother, I think has perhaps the biggest culinary influence on you as a child. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's generational also, but my grandparents and my uncles and so on. My father grew up on an island, on a tiny island on the West Coast, where we get amazing seafood. It's very seasonal, but, you you know, every month or every other month, there's a shift of what seafood. They're basically, you either a fisher person or you make boats or you're like you com- consumed with working on, in the trade of seafood and ocean. Sure. And um, on my mom's side, my grandparents, you know, they grew up very, very poor. So I think the layer of first imagine Sweden as a poor country, which could be hard today to imagine that, that then lends itself to natural craftsmanship, right? Uh, so my grandparents and my uncles, they made everything. They made maybe not shoes, but everything else was sure. handmade, which yeah. meant that you went fishing four days a week and you had fish seven days, six days a week. And you know, so with that, for my grandmother, there was always a season of something like foraging was not something you talked about because then you gave up the best places, for example, the opposite <laughs> right. of Instagram, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but it was always a season. When I say there was a season for something, you walk in, you run up the stairs up to her house, uh, you open up the, the door to the left is my grandfather screaming at the radio, straight ahead is my grandmother. And in that kitchen, there is mushroom to be dried over there, lingonberry to be cleaned up. There's a stock going on in the back. Bread is in the oven. Watch out. So you yeah. learn in this movement of food is such a core part of who they are. You know, so that's why I grew up. In, and at the same time, my parents, you know, in the 70s and the 80s were, you know, middle class uh, households. So where everything wasn't made, you know what I mean? But the craftsmanship really comes from that other generation of my grandparents and my uncles. Yeah. And um, what age did you start actively sort of cooking alongside your grandmother? Since day one, since I was five years old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's like if you, you know, my grandmother, I I never remember playing with my grandmother or my grandfather. It was you came Uh to that house ready to cook or, or, or help out. And it yeah. could be running down stuff to the pantry or marking, labeling stuff or jarring. You don't feel like it was work, but it was definitely not play. You know what I mean? Sure. Because you don't play around food. There's a knife, there's a hot oven. So for me, it was a very lovely, fun stuff. But uh, you definitely were making stuff. If I wanted to play, I hung out with my friends, you know. And if we went over to grandma's house, some of my friends didn't want to go over to grandma's house because, you know, we wasn't just playing soccer and hanging from the trees. If you went in the trees, you went apple picking. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you mentioned soccer. I know you played soccer pretty passionately to the point of maybe am I getting this right? You maybe even thought it could be a career path for you or how did sort of you envision what your career path might be? And was there a moment where it sort of landed on food for you? Yeah, I think it's I mean, my life has really been about a couple of things, right? Like soccer was definitely a big part of that. My friends are I still friends with those kids that I played with, we still meet, see the coach every year. And I learned a lot about training and discipline and so on. And obviously food. And there's a, there are similarities between being in a kitchen and, and, and being with your uh, friends. And, and the kitchen has that us against them type of thing that I really love that you kind of feel in a band or in a soccer team, you know, there's a camaraderie sure. there. And um, I traveled early with soccer. So, you know, it's something I'm still very passionate about and enjoy, you know. So you, you then go on to sort of, you, you go to culinary school, you start working your way through kitchens. We'll condense all of this a lot. I'd love to talk more about it, but of course you have a wonderful memoir folks can read too if they want to dig in a little deeper. We're going to come back now to the the most recent book of yours, The Rise, um, which is subtitled Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. Can you talk a little bit about how the idea for The Rise came about? I think it if I'm understanding correctly, sort of came to fruition really after the 2016 election. Yeah, I mean, I, I am I'm very slow with my projects. Like uh, the books takes each book takes about three to four years. Uh-huh. I think always about the books as a way. Uh, my father was a geologist and he worked, and then he did books as well in the basement. And it, okay. was, a, it was a way I grew up around him producing, doing books, and. I love working on books because it's a you learn parallel with the project. You have something to say. There is a point of view, but you also evolve. Mediums next to you evolves. You know, podcasts had basically in our field just started around 2016. Uh, and now it's a major part of how, how we articulate ourselves and learn, right? I did The Soul of a New Cuisine in 2007, mm-hmm. right? It's really the starting point for me about understanding the links between Africa and America. And I was always been inspired by Edna Lewis and Jessica Harris and Tony Tipton Martin. And that book, I was very young in terms of understanding West African food and, and South African food, which I've gone to South Africa a bunch of times. And I, I just felt like I, will, I always wanted to do a book that was very current in this moment here. And so I started to draft on, on the rise around 16 and, you know, had the amazing opportunity to work with Usai and Yuanda and the team. And, you know, the book doesn't really come to fruition until we really start meeting the chefs, you know, when, when you sure. have Usai comes back from his, spoken to these incredible chefs then now the book goes in a different direction, you know, which I love, you know, I and mean, that's really the back and forth. I never really collaborated. This was a very unique way of collaborating for me, working with Osei, which was amazing. And um, I knew I wanted to have, go in a different direction. When I worked with Veronica Chambers on Yes Chef, it was a singular focus on my journey, but I knew Veronica, I knew how to tell that story because I've known Veronica forever. Sure. And I love also the people that Osei brought into the book that, was not, I didn't want the book to be just the chefs that I worked at Red Rooster. That wasn't enough to tell this story, right? As much as I love yeah. those guys, some of them are in there, but in order for this to be a, a broader book, you know, 
listening to the stories of Tavel in Austin, you know, or 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 Greg in Portland or Aisha in Los Angeles or Mashama and Santa. Like it was it was important to tell multi-layered black stories that are super delicious, super complex, and we have to to unpack it. Telling these stories in part fell to Osai Endelin, who co-authored The Rise, conducting interviews and creating profiles of the folks featured in this book. I talked with Osai about her role in the project and how she brought together all of these voices from across the industry. Hi, Osai. How are you? Hello, hello. You know, I'm <laughs> like a lot of people, I'm here. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're here. And we're grateful that you're here because we're here right now in this moment to talk about The Rise, the new cookbook um, by Marcus Samuelson that you co-authored, subtitle is Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. And I'm really excited to talk to both you and Marcus about this book. And I want to start just by talking a little bit about how, from your perspective, the book came together. Like, what was your involvement in putting this together? Um, and what role did you sort of play generally um, for folks to understand the contributions you made? Sure. Well, every every cookbook collaboration, and I would say probably every book collaboration, has you know a unique story. This project already had legs before I came on board, and like with a lot of book ideas, it morphed as time went on and it became more clear what we were trying to do. My initial task was to bring. Um, essays into the book that could help articulate a very broad and, um, you know, very contemporary look at the influence and the reach of African American um, and African diaspora cooking in the United States. But what that started to become as a project, you know, proceeded was, you know, I tried to be a um, thoughtful, mm, I mean, I don't know the term, uh, maybe um, antagonist in a way to sort of kind of uh-huh. question and poke holes in premises and ideas that, you know, were suggested or presented to me. You know, one of the challenges that I felt like I had was there wasn't a huge existing model for a book like what I was being asked to help produce, right? Um, We hadn't really seen this kind of conversation happen in modern day publishing that was representative of, you know, a personality and celebrity figure like Marcus with the increasing conversations and and, um, awareness around Black people in the many areas of food in which we exist and an, an ability to deal openly with the very complex and difficult history that frames a lot of this food and food culture's ex- presence, you know, in this part of the world period. That, that's a lot to take on in, in, in one book. And it's not one that I feel like was ever me to own fully in this project. But I, I do think that um, what I tried to do was bring forth a lot of integrity to the stories that I was able to help tell and to convey a sense of deference and respect for people who are doing this work right now that may not have the kind of visibility that we're accustomed to in a cer- certain figures having and people who whose stories are you know much older but who are just as integral to the conversation that we are having right now so you know i was kind of like um an ideas person you know i probably felt i probably you know was considered kind of like <laughs> 
a negative Nancy at times. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the responsibility that I feel like you have. And, you know, like I, I won a lot of battles you know, I, I didn't win others and that's what it means to collaborate, right? Like, you know, you, you stir everybody's stuff in, in one place and, you know, you really hope for, for the best. I, I can say that I'm, I'm satisfied with what I was able to contribute to this, to this project. And I think, you know, projects like this are better for, and, you know, Marcus will probably be the first one to tell you, like, for that constant pushing back and, and saying, you know, well, what about this? And, and, you know, a consideration um, in that vein is, you know, taking on so many different cultures and so many different histories. You know, I'm a California born black person of partial Nigerian descent. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, my mother at her ancestry, you know, appears that, you know, her ancestors are from that region as well. But, you know, her parents came from the American South. That's a very different point of view than someone like, you know, Marcus, who, uh, you know, his story is, is well, is well known. And, you know, but we still experience blackness in certain ways, you know, um, some of those ways overlap. And how does that translate um, in a food story that encompasses a lot of cultures and, you know, unique narratives that don't belong to either of us. So I really try to root the book in the experiences of the people we profiled. And, you know, that was the, that was the jumping off point for the recipes that you see, you know, all of which of course have, you know, Marcus's personal kind of um, expression influenced in them. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a particular challenge as you work on a project like this, right? Because we look at the cookbook publishing industry over time and it has not been representative of the contributions that black cooks have made. So you're both, you're struggling to sort of, I I would imagine, I don't want to put words to your mouth here, but I think that you have this challenge of trying to tell this broad story while, as you noted, also being true to so many various identities and culinary identities um, that folks are bringing. How do you sort of balance all of that as you're thinking about um, writing these essays and, and talking to these chefs and authors and folks who you featured and what sort of things did you learn as part, did, did you learn things? I imagine you did as you were putting together all of these profiles of folks. I certainly learned a lot. Um, one of the things that I realized right off the bat was no matter how experienced these people were in their respective careers, whether they be activists, authors, professors, chefs, caterers, you know, there was a little bit of a sense, and this could have been impacted by just the time of day or the day of the week that, you know, we had these interviews, but like, I got this sense initially, like, you know, this or almost like a sense of like, Oh, just we, we ate whatever. Or like my mom cooked this or whatever. Like there was just sort of a casualness around describing people's own food stories. Now these are folks who are all very intensely committed to talking about like ancestral foodways and representing maybe people that they interview or that they put on their social media platforms with great care. But when it came to kind of, you know, focusing on them, the story somehow became very small. And it, and it, it seemed to me a recurring theme when I would go back over these transcripts to kind of go back and tease out and say like, well, yeah, but I want to hear about that casual whatever dinner from Tuesday night, right? Like I want to know what you grew up eating. I want to know who cooked in your family. 
where did you grocery shop? You know, did you have a garden? You know, one of the people who was most actually vivid, that wasn't universal, but it was common. Um, I would say one of the people who was most vivid, and this won't surprise anyone who's heard her speak, is Davida Davison, um, Mm -hmm. who is the executive director of Food Lab Detroit. And uh, she, her family comes from Alabama, where, um, you know, from Selma, where they have just had, um, you know, (laughs) you know, her, her ability to convey, I mean, there was a moment where she kind of broke down what her mother's food schedule was like, you know, and it was like Mondays, it was this Tuesdays, it was this Wednesdays, we remixed this to do that Thursdays, this was my job Fridays, this is my brother's job. I mean, you know, I'm totally truncating it right now. But there was this just vitality in her recalling how much care her mother made to ensure that there was, you know, these meals on the table, that they were whole meals, they were that they were um, um, nutritious and, and fortifying, and they were deeply rooted in traditions that they had brought with them from, you know, migrating north. And, you know, there were times where, you know, I kind of felt like I was having to like, pull it out, like, tell me what you, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, And I think as people, as the convert, but here's what would happen that was so cool. Like as the conversation would go on and I would sometimes reference another conversation I'd had, or, you know, sometimes what happens when you're interviewing someone, and I'm sure you've experienced this, people start to say, oh, like I get what we're talking about now, right? Like they kind of lock in and you can almost hear the energy shift, right? And they're like right. suddenly deeply engaged or they or they have a memory. Sometimes it's because they haven't thought about this stuff in a long time. And so, I mean, this book, you know, has come to kind of mean a lot of things to different people. But for me, I kind of find myself thinking back to those early conversations, you know, in late 2017, early 2018, talking to people whose work I've admired, whose work I've studied, you know, I sat down for two hours in an empty Dookie Chase's restaurant one afternoon with the queen herself, Mrs. Leah Chase. And she spoke very generously about her experiences growing up in Louisiana between Madisonville and New Orleans. And, you know, her start at the restaurant, you know, navigating different aspects of her career. Of course, she was, you know, her comedic timing was perfect as ever. I mean, like that time is something that, I will, I will treasure. Right. Um, and so I think you asked me, how do I, how do you balance it? I mean, I think your job as a writer, when you're doing a profile, like such that we see here is try to be clear about the, you know, what, what this person's work represents. And that's really hard to do in just a few hundred words, like, right. Like each one of these people, um, some of them have their own memoirs. Many of them, sure. you know, should be working on them. You know, that's a, that's a note to some of you, um, <laughs> you know, but like, uh, how do you, how do you encapsulate, you know, Fred Opie in just uh, one, one spread, you know, that's what we call, you know, layout in, in books. Um, how do you, how do you summarize Tony Tipton Martin? How do you, how do you put what BJ Dennis does, which is so visceral and so physical and so emotional onto a page, right? <laughs> Where you can't touch or smell or hear his voice, right? And so I tried not to get too caught up in like what I couldn't do and just tried to really focus on, you know, honoring, you know, if, if I was this person, how would I want this story to be presented? And, you know, I recently saw one of my, um, you know, mentors, Bill Addison, described my essays in this book as unflinching 
And, you know, I, I was so appreciative of that because there is a lot of struggle in this narrative, but there is a lot of beauty and triumph and perseverance and pride. And I really wanted all of those things to come through. Sometimes it's very easy for people to, you know, especially folks who are sort of outside the narrative of African-American history to really focus on some of the darker stuff. And that's, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be paying attention to it, but that's not all there is. And so to be able to hold these truths at the same time is a real exercise, I think, in how we tell stories about ourselves as Black people, but also how we invite folks who may not identify with our individual narratives to be a part of this conversation as well. And that's that's really what I wanted is for someone who doesn't, you know, for anyone, you know, who, who um, you know, who's reading this book to be able to place themselves into this, this narrative and, and understand that while this is a very broad history, it is also kind of at the same time specific, you know, but, it, but in its specificity, it becomes universal, right? Which is a thing that they teach writers a lot when it comes to like personal essays, right? The more specific and the more narrow you get, the more wide reaching the, the spirit of the piece becomes. And so just that constant juggling, you know, I don't know that it was, you know, was it successful, like cover to cover? I mean, that's for readers to decide, but I know what I put into it. And um, I did, I did my best. I talked with Marcus too, about the structure of the book and bringing together so many voices for a volume like this. You talk about how the book sort of evolved as more contributions were made, but how do you sort of even think about a project of this scope? I mean, you, you write sort of very explicitly at the beginning that, of course, Black food is not monolithic, but it also is integral to the story of American cuisine. And so you're sort of working to tell stories that um, maybe are overdue or haven't been given as much credit historically. We know that. But you're also trying to represent something that is so wide reaching and has so many facets to it. Was that a challenge as this book sort of came together over time? I mean, it's always a challenge, especially when you admire something and you you know the intent is to broaden the conversation, yet you can make mistakes. And, and I mean, our intent is to tell and shine light on these incredible chefs past, present, future, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There was no, the rise is the type of book I wish if I was in culinary school, I, uh, uh, you know, that I had or something like that, right? And I think music has done it so well in terms of, if you think about American music and you think about Black contribution to American music, it's almost one from gospel to jazz to R&B to funk to hip hop to rock and roll. In, in each of those segments, you can say what era even, right? What era of funk? What era of hip hop? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And in food, we just don't have that layered yet, right? And, you know, there is five original cuisines in America that all are linked and really passes the majority of its origin come from the black experience. When you think about low country, think about Cajun Creole, Southern that we refer to as very often as soul food and barbecue. All these are five original cuisines that all are part of the black experience. Not only black experience, but they're for everyone, but there's a, there's a big contribution there, right? That should be acknowledged. There should be clarity around the authorship. If you don't have clarity around authorship, you can't create great memories. Memories get like muddled and therefore the aspirations get confused, right? And that 
modernness doesn't start with necessarily with America's history. It starts with very often greatness from Africa when it comes to food and raw products is taken out of Africa and credited to Europe, right? Cocoa beans from Ghana becomes chocolate, becomes Belgian chocolate, right? Ethiopian Kenyan coffee becomes French rose coffee and so on, right? Right. So if we don't understand where it comes from, it's very hard for us to understand and give credit where credit is due. So that was a very, very, very important part of the book. The other part is also, obviously, Black people have contributed as laborers forever anonymously in this country as enslaved and doesn't get credited enough. I mean, not just in food history, in any history, right? So, you know, when I think about this book and whether you you think about the work that Nicole Hannah-Jones is, is doing or whether there's mm-hmm. the work that Isabel Wickerson is doing, like caste, class, race, food needs should be talked about. And th- we have an opportunity to sit around the dinner table, unlearn the wrong side of history, relearn the history of the way in a different matter, and then engage with it and give that credit, you know, and broadcast that. Osai also talked about bringing representation from across the food industry for this project. How intentional was it to have the mix of types of folks that you have in terms of um, careers in the book, right? You mentioned some names already, but certainly this could have been a book of Black chefs, it's not exclusively Black chefs. So there's activists, there's authors, there's all sorts of folks who work across the culinary spectrum. Was that determined at the outset? And how important was that to sort of have a wide sort of range of voices? Yeah, that was definitely something that um, I was asked to bring to the project in terms of people who I who I thought would be kind of representative and indicative. You know, the the idea of food has come to me, you know, food as a as a, a means to, you know, restaurants and dining and, and things like that, you know, that, that's evolved over time. But if you're thinking about the historic legacy of Black foodways, it has always required and, and involved people coming from different um, touch points, right? So to me, it, it, it would have been an incomplete story to only include folks who are doing that creative and very important chef work. But um, part of what creates the space for chefs to do what they do, at least in a more visible way, is the work that writers do, right? And and the writers are oftentimes, you know, learning from and being challenged by the activists, right? So, and you know, the act, you know, it's a it's a cyclical thing. You know, we have sure. Matthew Rayford and Javon Sage who you know, are one example of people who are, who are working the land. Right. Uh, and also, you know, he's a chef as well, Matthew, right. And, 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 and Javon is, you know, they're out in New Brunswick, Georgia. She's, she's looking at the, um, the plant medicine and the, and the, and the healing, um, that is so deeply rooted in so many African diaspora cultures and, and one that many people specifically back women, um, are finding their way back to more more visibly i would say in the last in the last decade or so um you know these are all integral they these are not necessarily things that get captured on the cover of magazines or get centered as people to watch on on cable network but this is where the work is happening and so yeah these names that 
I put forward, many of them are people who I know, you know, I've, I've been at Gilliard Farm, I've been to Gilliard Farms in New Brunswick, Georgia, you know, I've seen Matthew and Jovan's hens and, and hibiscus and, you know, the, the old, you know, tree, like, I mean, these are, it, it felt very natural, you know, for me to call forth these, these relationships and, you know, to ask them if they would share a bit of themselves with this project, you know, which they, which they all very generously did. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Marcus Samuelson and Osai Endelin about their new book, The Rise. But first, let's go to Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney, who's cooking from The Rise this week. Sarah joins us from New York, where she's making crab curry with yams and mustard greens. One summer in college, I worked as a camp counselor on the eastern shore of Maryland. We sailed and slept for a week at a time on wooden sailboats called skipjacks. In the early morning hours, we'd set a line for crabs. As the sun rose, we'd run the line. The kids would stand by with their nets, but their excitement often spooked the crabs, which would drop off the line. But we'd steam the ones we managed to catch and spill them onto the deck for a feast. That was the memory that came into my mind when I read Marcus Samuelson's recipe for crab curry with yams and mustard greens. But when I wanted to make the recipe here in Albany, New York, far from the Atlantic, the place to find fresh crab is the Asian supermarket on Central Avenue. Sitting below the fish counter next to the live frogs is a bucket of crabs, dozens crawling on top of each other, their blue tipped claws flailing in the air. My partner, Jesse McKinley, steps up to the counter. Can we get three pounds of crab? Three pounds of crab. The fishmonger uses metal tongs to pull the crabs out of the bucket. But as he picks them up, they hold tight to each other, forming long tendrils. Where did these crabs come from? Do you know which country? Hmm? Where they came from? From here. From here, okay. He's a good one. Oh, no, both of them, both. That's right. yeah. Yeah. Oh, hang on to each other. The crabs are small compared to the big ones we pulled out of the Chesapeake. Another customer digs through the bucket, and he seems disappointed Thank by his you for options. The help. Yeah. Which one are you trying to get? Bigger ones? Yeah, I tried to find bigger one, but two small that. Yeah, all small. Do you know where they're from, the crabs? I don't know. Maybe Connecticut? We find everything else we need for the recipe here, too. Sweet potatoes, garlic, ginger, red onion, even the curry leaves and the mustard greens. Those are curry leaves. And in Chinese, I don't know how to pronounce it. Kinjioi. This is great. We're, We're making a recipe that's from the American South, and we're shopping at an Asian supermarket. That's this why, why America. It's great. great. I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Okay, I think we should do these. These are habaneros. Okay, great. So, we could do the orange. That's kind of pretty. Those are beautiful. All right, and now we want mustard greens. That's cabbage, water spinach, bok choy. These are yam leaves. Wow, look at those. Oh, here we go. Big mustard. Big mustard. Perfect. Let's just get. Let's get two of those. That was my name in college, by the way. Big mustard. <laughs> get two of them. Don't ask. Oh. <laughs> Back at the house, we put two pots of salted water on the stove to steam the crabs. And Jesse's 16-year-old son, Jake, joins us in the kitchen. Jesse reaches inside the paper bag of live, crawling, pinching crabs and starts picking them up one by one with his hand. This is boiling. So... What do we do? So you can put some crabs in there. 
Here it goes. They're kind of dangerous. No, use the tongs. Chelsea, that is a terrible idea. They're all, <laughs> <laughs> They're all hanging on to each other. All right, here goes more. Uh, is there a lid for these guys? Lid for these guys? They really all hang on to each other, don't they? All right. Let's look ahead so we don't have to think about the death that's happening. With the crab steaming, we get to work prepping the vegetables for the curry. Jake starts peeling and chopping the sweet potatoes into cubes, and Jesse starts in on the onion. And it says julienne, but I don't actually know how to julienne something. Let's look. Internet, tell us. Yeah. Okay, so julienne is, oh, it's cut into long, thin strips similar to matchsticks. I mean, just try your best. This is not Julia Child's. When we check on the crabs, a green grime is erupting from them. Their shells have turned a reddish-orange, and we drain the crabs into a giant colander. Ah. Yeah, okay, grab the other one. I think they can all, they're so much smaller now. We heat up two tablespoons of vegetable oil. The recipe says to add the onion, garlic, ginger, and turmeric when the oil starts to shimmer. Is the oil shimmering? starting to kind of glisten. I don't know if it's shimmering. Crackle. It's crackling. Yeah, there we go. Okay, it's let's shimmering. put in the onion. Yeah. Done. Okay, and the garlic and the ginger. There we go. Yeah. We add in two teaspoons of turmeric and give it a stir. It smells, it smells really good. Okay, now we need the cumin and the cayenne and the curry leaves. Maybe that's not curry. Well, no, remember it was in Chinese. <laughs> I don't know. And that's when we put hemlock in the food. <laughs> We're not sure if the leaves we bought at the Asian supermarket are curry leaves, but we add them to the pot anyway. Then a teaspoon of cumin, a quarter teaspoon of cayenne, some tomato paste, and a chopped orange habanero pepper. And then we stir the yumminess for a few minutes. Ooh, the smells are amazing. This nice orange color now, right? Yeah, like okay, so now it says add the coconut milk, the water, and then you can toss in the sweet potatoes. Whoa, kerplunk. While the yam curry simmers, we check on the crabs. They've cooled enough out in the evening air to start picking out the meat. Oh, wow. Cleaning the crab is tedious work. The crabs are small, and there isn't a lot of meat on each one. I sense there's some disappointment over here in the crab-picking part of the kitchen. I gotta say, it's a lot of work. I'm it not, is a I'm lot not of gonna work. lie. Our three pounds of live crab yields about a ramekin of crab meat. All right, you got one more crab left. One lonely crab. Oh, God. I have newfound respect for people who make crab dishes. This is a lot of work. No kidding. We add the chopped mustard greens to the simmering curried sweet potatoes, and the whole dish turns green and yellow. Then, Jesse is ready to add his cup of hard-earned crab meat. Pour that in. Okay. Bombs away! Crabs away! All right. Okay, and then... It says, add the crab and cook until heated through and the greens are wilted. Two to three minutes more. The greens are definitely wilted. It's funny, it has almost like a smoky smell to it. Here, come smell. Or is that just something that burned? <laughs> I think that's a smoky. Let's go with smoky. Let's go with smoky. Okay, I'm going to turn it off. It's just. Okay, let's 
serve this up. We put a scoop of rice in each bowl and top it with the crab curry. We can't find the cilantro, but we do add lime wedges, which turn out to be delicious. When we sit down to eat, we fire up Outstanding by the Gap Band, a song suggested by the cookbook author. Bon appétit, everybody. Bon appétit. Cheers. Thank you for all of your help. That is tasty and spicy. (laughs) Yeah. What are the flavors that you're tasting? Well, there's sweetness from the yams, and then there's a real kick from the habanero. I also just got a little bit of shell. (laughs) (laughs) I blame the crab pickers. That's my fault. My bad. The yam and crab curry feels like a perfect spring dish when the nights are still cold and you want something warm and fragrant. That's Salt and Spine Kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney cooking from The Rise by Marcus Samuelson and Osai Endelin. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall to today's guests, Marcus Samuelson and Osai Endelin, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, where you can cook a Along with one of our featured authors every month, and then join us for a virtual dinner party with that author. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community today at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Marcus Samuelson and Osai Endelin, authors of The Rise. Yeah, I think sometimes folks feel like it can be sort of cliche to say that food is a great unifier and that food can bring folks together. But it is sort of, in some extent, an argument that you make to some extent in this book, because, I mean, you one, you note that food food history is history, in a sense, and that food has always been, for instance, uh, a core part of the movement for racial justice. And you write about that in the introduction to the book. Do you feel that food is sort of has this ability to play a role in bringing people together and building community and addressing some of the political and social issues that we face? I I will answer that with saying that, um, you know, one of the biggest privileges is to be able to tell my story, a black story, that is highly layered and complex. Mm -hmm. So even if you think about, I am an Ethiopian that grew up in Sweden, living in Harlem, there is many turns and complexity there. If you compare that to Naisha's story, that is Korean-American grandmother with African-American side, can you be both African-American, a chef from Los Angeles, and Korean-American? Of course you can, right? Right. There lies the complexity and the opportunity and the challenges and the deliciousness, right? Uh-huh. And almost only in America does that happen. And my, my point about the book was we talked about the five original cuisines, but then also obviously immigration and then how people migrate and marry and couples and, and travel changes too, right? So blackness is vast. It's not just one thing. And then if you're going to start to teach from that point of view, you can't cover everything. So the, the singular stories were very important that, 
you know, that Nina Compton tells her story, that Greg takes his story, that, you know, each one, and that's what Jose has done so wonderfully here. Like it's, here's an introduction and maybe in your community, wherever you are, oh, I've never thought about that chef. Oh, I never thought about that. That is not just one thing. So I think it's important to show our a layer, a complexity and our beauty. You know, Chef Jerome is, is Jamaican and Filipino, for example, in DC. Like there's all these issues that we all as black people know that we're not just one thing. And, and this is an opportunity to really describe that. And that that's what inspired me in terms of the recipe. That's what inspired us in terms of sharing these stories. And in the very end in the book, we give the Instagram handle to about 200 other chefs that we couldn't cover in the book, but just to show that this is not something that happened in New York or LA or in Chicago only. There are incredible black chefs throughout the country. If you have a company, if you're a private person, whatever you are, support it. We're here, you know? So yeah, it's, 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 it is complex to have a broad book and tell a broad story, but I felt like it was time, you know? Yeah. I think that was the most important thing. I'm not going to not do it because it couldn't be perfect, you know? I talked with Osai about the same topic. In the intro, there's a phrase, which I think is maybe important just to bring out for a moment, um, which ties into a lot of this. Food has always been part of the movement for racial justice. This book, I know, has been a long time in the making. And, and this book, I think, is a book that we should have welcomed at any time period, but it's being published now in this period where we are seeing a lot of national attention broadly on the conversations around racial justice. We are dealing with, as as it's noted in the book, because this is such a new and timely book, the deal, um, the implications of COVID, um, the coronavirus, and the disproportionate impact that 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 pandemic is having on Black people and people of color across the country. How do you sort of see this book fitting into where we are today in terms of the conversations around the contributions that Black people have made to to American food and the way that we cook and eat today? Well, I hope it's an invitation uh, to further more, more interest. I mean, look, this is a dense book. There are a lot of recipes. There are a lot of stories. There were times even when I was working on this project, I needed to like set the thing down because the sense of gravitas was just so high. But um, yes, I mean, if you if you understand that African people from just an incredibly diverse part of the world, you know, were brought together and systemically pursued for a specific expertise and, and then forced to to do, to do many other, um, you know, to perform many other roles in the making of societies throughout the Americas, you know, all of that was rooted in agriculture, what we understand today to be agriculture. So all of the advocacy that we talk about today, you know, stems from, from this core decision, right? Um, so, you know, from, from cultivating and growing the food to harvesting it, to butchering it, to distilling and for you know fermenting and brewing, um, you know to to preparing to the service of it to the presentation of it. I mean, all of that was was led by African people or their descendants um, in in this geographical area. And so, yes, you know, when you understand that, you understand that you know Fannie Lou Hamer was advocating for voting rights, but she was also 
in Mississippi, you know, in the Delta working to create an opportunity for people to do something other than work um, plantations for, for little to no, to no money, um, you know, in the sixties, mind you. Right. So um, this, this is not as old a history as many people uh, from many backgrounds, including black uh, would like to sometimes present it as being. And, um, you know, we see the roots and, you know, really like the tentacles of that history pervade everything that we're experiencing today. You know, you mentioned COVID and so much of what we're experiencing in terms of the apathy toward restaurants is because so many of the people who work in restaurants are black and brown people. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. So, you know, of course, government doesn't care because government has illustrated many, many times over and over again that when black and brown people are, are at the center of the conversation, they don't want to have the conversation. Um, and so I think this is um, a, a critical moment. I don't know that, you know, in publishing, I'm starting to learn that things happen when they happen, right? You have deadlines and you have intentions. And I've seen people put themselves in the hospital to turn a book on time only to have the publisher delay it by a year. So like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but like, right. I mean, this book, this book was due earlier than it was turned in. And there are a lot of inside baseball reasons for that. But, you know, the the thing that you're holding in your hands is what came. And I I would argue that this book would have been um, an important part of the conversation at any point in time. But it seems that it's struck a particular chord right now, because more people, including in our industry, are more uh, at least on the surface, invested in recognizing so many of the gaps. And part of why, you know, we have a resource section in the back of this book is to further illustrate to you that this conversation that the rise is having is not new. And that if you've been missing it, it's not because it wasn't happening. <laughs> right. And so, you know, where can you as a reader be engaged and accountable for your own biases and and blind spots. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a harsh conversation with yourself, but you should have a conversation with yourself, right? I mean, I I even think about this, you know, back in the day when we were traveling, you know, if I was getting ready to go somewhere, and I would recognize, okay, there's an experience I want to have in this country I've never been to before. And there's a place where I'm at right now. How can I shore up that gap? Well, I'm buying books. I'm watching movies. I'm renting documentaries. I'm signing up for newsletters. I'm seeking out people from that country on Twitter, right? Like all of a sudden within like 30 minutes, (laughs) I can have like a graduate level amount of like a graduate degree level of information, like in my lap, just from the effort of saying I'm interested. Yeah. You know, I will never forget last year. I will never forget this. I was having a much needed spa day i was in amman jordan and Uh i had been like going really hard for a really long time i was like i'm gonna go and get myself worked out and so one of the last services i had was um, a pedicure and this uh this woman who you know she was very chatty she you know we were talking a lot she was from the philippines and she was speaking english to me she was speaking tagalog to her colleague she was speaking arabic to the proprietor of the spa and she just let me know that she also spoke Spanish, which, you know, it's not surprising because she's from the Philippines. But, um, you know, we're just making conversation, you know, like, and I have French pretty good, right? Like, that's, uh-huh. that's my, you know, that's my check mark. So I said, you know, how is it that you, uh, you know, you learned all these languages? And she, as she's buffing my nails, she goes, 
if you care about it, you learn it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, next question. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like it's true. Anything that you've learned, you had to give a shit about it for like right. a minute. And so you cannot say that you are interested in um, American cooking, American cuisine, if you're not including Black foodways in that conversation. And if every name in this book is new to you, I would argue that that's like a call to action. And it could be a really exciting and emotional one, but it's, it's one that I implore people to take. I took the opportunity of talking with Chef Marcus Samuelson to also talk more broadly about the cookbook industry. Yeah, and as we talk about um, the stories of Black cooks being under-acknowledged or unacknowledged, historically, we, we are a show on cookbooks, obviously, and we look at the cookbook industry, and that's clearly reflected there in terms of who's getting cookbook deals, who's able to tell their own stories, who's able to author things. I think we're, we're sort of seeing shifts. Of course, now we have books like this. We have Tony Tipton Martin's works, which have been hugely successful and, and others we could name. Where do you sort of see the cookbook publishing food media industry moving either in the past few years or what are we on the cusp of in terms of representing Black voices more holistically? The, the cookbook industry has a lot of catching up to do, right? Yeah. It's, Publishing in, in general has a lot of catching up to do. So right. um, I think that, you know, the next, I'm super excited about the next wave of incredible Black chefs coming out with books next year, whether it's Eduardo's coming up with his book, Mashama's coming out with her book, Adrian is coming out with her book. You know what I mean? So there's a whole wave. I think Nicole's book's coming out next year as well. You know, I just know the amount of books that people have just told me that's coming out, right? And I think it's due to several different things. Through social media, people can publish in a completely different way. So there's there's less gatekeepers and different gatekeepers, which means that more stories going to get told and shared. That's fantastic. That's incredible. And I'm not worried about the future. You can't really undo the past, but you can acknowledge it, right? And uh, we have a very American history towards blackness is obviously very very you know it's documented it's complicated it's it's has never portrayed us in a in a fair way in terms in terms of our contribution what we're given the publishing side reflects that you know and i do think that it starts to acknowledge it but whether it's acknowledged or not people will publish and create an audience and social media has been a major factor to that and that's fantastic yeah, I know The Rise, of course, is not an encyclopedic work. And you mentioned there's 200 chefs you couldn't include. And of course, many, many others who aren't even um, mentioned in the pages of the book. Say someone does pick up The Rise with an inclination of wanting to better sort of learn and understand the history of Black cooking in the United States and, and across the world. Is there a particular recipe or section or person you might say like start here this is a good way to sort of acclimate yourself to this book and what it's trying to do yeah i mean i think that starting with leah i think it's amazing it's leah chase leah chase yeah but, you know at 96 she cooked all the way to the end yeah. and a restaurant started duke chase started in the 40s and leah seen it all from the black vote civil rights movement it was illegal to serve black and white people in a restaurant. She took a chance. She was both, both an advocate and an activist. Yeah. She was also in a Beyonce video. Pretty dope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, right. but, but there's also a couple of, and doing this work, I knew it, but it was even more in front of me. 
the amount of incredible depth we owe to black women. And I'll just yeah. highlight some in the beginning, like Miss Georgina, that she was a mother of six, single mother of six, woke up three o'clock in the morning, baked pies, and raised about $100 a week in the 50s to uh, the civil rights movement, right? So there's a movement and activism way before there were pop-ups, but it was a pop-up in a way, right? The sure. way before it was like a way to communicate it, but only word of mouth, right? And then you think about someone like Sophia Wright that was in front of Linda B. Johnson with her food and had that important presence in front of him. So sometimes it doesn't always have to be, food is much bigger than restaurants. Mm -hmm. Something that's very, I love restaurants. I've devoted my life to restaurants. But food was there, and particularly what restaurants and food means to black people is a very different journey than it means for white people, right? Yeah. They never had to think about whether they could sit somewhere, whether it was, you know, all of those different things, right? And in the beginning of the book talks a little bit about that. And the final part of the book was done during and post Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, kind of Taylor, and the movement that was happening, that is happening during the pandemic, completely changed or emphasized how we were working on the book, you know, as a collective. I also talked with Osai about the future, both for the cookbook industry and the broader culinary world at large. I love how the book is organized, too, in terms of the structure of the actual book, because I think it speaks to that point, too, that there, there's a chapter on called Next, or a section called Next, rather, um, about what's next for, for Black cooking in, the, in America. I think there's often this um, terminology as we talk about the contributions that Black cooks make to American food that it's something that has happened in the past. And it's sort of a two-pronged approach, right? I think it's really important for folks to understand that Black cooks' contributions to what American food is today have historically been undervalued or underrepresented or not credited in any way at all. But there's also this other component that I think is really important of celebrating the now and the next. And I think right. this book really does a great job of sort of balancing that. Can you talk about sort of what's what's on the horizon and what sort of you learned as you were putting this book together about how black folks are innovating in the culinary spaces across the country? Well, the innovation has been constant, right? Like, I mean, we've never not innovated. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, you may feel like, Oh, Doug, like I know that, but like, it was important for me to say that to myself and to, you know, kind of express that to collaborators on this project. Like, we need to be careful that we're not presenting this cuisine or these cuisines, I should say, as we are inventing the wheel. We didn't, we're not inventing anything here. We are documenting what has already existed and what continues to exist, whether or not this book like ever sees the light of day. And I think that's an important sort of humble and political stance to take because it recognizes like we're still learning, like we're still in the collection stage. This history was not just sort of arbitrarily lost. It was disappeared. Just like, you know, you, you strip someone of their name and you put a number on their shirt and you tell them, and you call them by that number, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. This is, yeah. it, it is the same, it's, it's the same idea. The difference was that, you know, the people who did this work from, you know, the earliest years of, of this, of this country had their, their seasonings, their flavors, their spices, their their culinary expertise, their agricultural expertise, it just sort of, it kind of seeped into, you know, the, the woodwork, so to speak, right? It kind of became a part of the fabric. And then one day, 
you wanted to make a certain classification of work a professional classification, and now only white people can do it. And now it's a job, right? <laughs> now right. it demands wages. But that was always there. And, and that's why it's so important, particularly for people of color, to understand how different things are for people who identify as Black, because there was never the option, even if you did immigrate here as someone Black from an, from an African nation like my father did, or people who came from the Caribbean, you know, which is a whole world of history and all of those, you know, countries and islands, you still got kind of sidelined into this narrative, whether or not it was yours your, your sort of heritage. But what, what differs uh, from other POC who, whose family, you know, who they themselves may have immigrated here is that there was a potentially a choice. And I'm not saying that the choice was always like super easy, right? Um, there are people from Indian, Thai, Malaysian, Chinese backgrounds who are still kind of fighting to, to get the recognition they deserve or to be able to charge what they want to charge. I mean, there's certainly tons of ignorance out there to go around. But I'm saying that it's different because for many other cultures, there was a decision at some point to say, I'm going to adapt my cuisine in order so I can have a clientele in the middle of Iowa and sell Maine and cheeseburgers, right? Like yeah. that history has been very beautifully documented in many places. Um, I'm not saying that that was simple or that that was not without its tensions, but it still was different than than sort of being kind of baked in to this idea that, you know, Black people belong in this particular social space and, you know, they can never move out of it. So even to just acknowledge that, yes, like, you know, there is food that's distinct from Jamaica, there, that, which is distinct from St. Lucia, which is distinct from what's going on in Texas, which is distinct from what's going on, you know, in North Charleston, which is distinct from what's happening in Baltimore, which is distinct from perhaps, you know, what you see re represented in Harlem. And that, it really is up to no one to try to present themselves as an expert on every single one of these stories. Right. Um, yeah. And it, it would be foolish to try. And I, I think that we tried to organize this book in a way that in many ways you could switch people out from different chapters, just depending on what part of their lives you want to focus on. Right. Sure. So mm -hmm. I urge folks to not be too prescriptive, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Mashama Bailey, we, I think, you know, we have her in the migration conversation, but she could easily be in the next conversation. Sure. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that's just one example, you know, everyone, these chapter four is legacy, but like everyone here is talking about a legacy in, in some way. So to make a book readable, to make a cookbook, actionable you have to break it up you have to have an index you got to like be able to point people but i hope when folks start and what i've been learning from readers who have gotten in touch with me is that they sit down and they just read the thing right yeah. like let me read the openers let me read these profiles and then they like sit with it and then they're able to cook i have not encountered anyone who's reached out to me directly who just started making food they wanted sure. to sit with these people and their stories first. And that is gratifying to me because, you know, a book is not going to time out. You can, <laughs> you can open it anytime. And, you know, I hope more than just, and honestly, I, I, I hope that people who get the rise, you know, you're inspired to say, wow, let me go look more into Adrian Miller's incredible over. Let me go buy the president's kitchen cabinet. Let me go get his book, Soul Food. Let me go get Tony Tipton Martin's jubilee let me rep let me recognize that people like shakira simley 
are like in our midst, right? Like mm-hmm. she's not a quote unquote, you know, food personality, right? I don't think she would describe herself that way. Yeah. You know, she's working, she's working, you know, city hall in San Francisco, right? To fight for, for racial equity. But that's a person who's deeply rooted, you know, her work around race extends from her experiences around food and it, and the inequity she saw, you know, growing up in, in Harlem and, and, and coming to California and recognizing access and opportunity that was denied her and her family, specifically, you know, her grandmother. So I feel like if you look, you will see, you know, as you mentioned earlier, this, this notion that, you know, of course, food is always political and that you cannot ever extract food from the conversation around um, equity and, and justice, particularly as it pertains to Black people. As one of the most visible chef restaurateurs in the country, I also wanted to talk to Marcus Samuelson about the impact of COVID on the restaurant industry, something that he addresses in the early pages of The Rise. Yeah, I mean, the book obviously years in the making, but the the opening pages couldn't be more timely with, with what you just noted and also with COVID. I mean, you, you acknowledge the impact that COVID is having on the restaurant industry, the disproportionate impacts, um, the disproportionate way that COVID has impacted communities of color. How has the pandemic sort of affected, has it affected, I guess, not how has, has it affected how you think about food and feeding people in the service industry? I know giving back has always been a core component of what you do, but I know you've converted Red Rooster into serving meals for first responders and frontline workers. And you talk in Yes Chef, I remember when I when I read Yes Chef about having to lay people off after 9-11 and how hard that was and how challenging that was. And it feels like we're in another sort of moment that's just really brought to the forefront some of the challenges that we're facing and will face as a restaurant industry. How has that sort of impacted how you're thinking and operating? Everything, right? Yeah. Like um, March 15, we had to take that decision to close Red Rooster in Harlem and convert it to a community kitchen together with Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen. Mm-hmm. We went on a different chapter, a different unknown chapter. From March 15 to October 15, we served 220,000 meals. Wow. We had no restaurant anymore the way we thought about Restaurant Rooster. Yet, we knew that we were working on probably the most important part of Red Rooster. Yeah. We, our new regulars, our regulars changed. And that profoundly changes you. At the same time in Miami, we opened, we closed, we opened, we closed, and we just now finally opened again. And I mean, serving is part of being in hospitality. And I think about that in all my work. I think about as a black chef, you know, think about the privileges I have as a black male chef. I wouldn't be here without the civil rights movement, for example, right? So I stand on those shoulders. Like, so I always think about how do you pay back and how do you be hospitable, whatever the situation, whether it's my work through CCAP, Harlem Meetup, where we have our own fund, where we emphasize on black businesses and restaurant businesses, even out of the rice, you know, we raised a lot of money. We have a black fund that's going to go to black and brown uh, restaurant businesses. Uh, and so this is part of, of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not something we're going to be out of in nine months when the vex- everyone got the six- vaccine. First of all, I don't believe everyone will get the vaccine. Who's going to get it? And right. you can figure out yourself who's going who's to get it first and who will get it last, right? It's right. all connected to finance and access and all of those different things, right? And how that impacts black and brown communities. Uh, but I'm so impressed with how Harlem and 
the restaurant community here have responded. But I'm always optimistic, and this is the first time I'm not super optimistic because this will be with us for a very, very long time. We These PPP loans are not just going to make everything good again. These are fundamentally huge changes that has happened already. Consumer behavior has changed, and we're not going back to November 2019. Right. And um, as black and brown businesses have harder to get access to finance and different generational wealth and access to cash, this will have impact on us. Yeah. But we've always been entrepreneurial. You know, so there's also stories of hope. Maybe this is the time where you start that home business online. Uh, if you, you know, are amazing at cookies or, or if you're amazing at catering or, you know, so there's always another side of that, that it might not be in four walls restaurant. It might look else, something else, you know. And I, and I do know that we're resilient and we'll work hard. And I do know I will work as hard as I can to provide for as many as I, as I can. I always relish the chance to talk with Osai because she always has great insight onto what we can expect for the cookbook industry and really the food media at large. So I took the opportunity to close our conversation by asking for some insight into where the industry is headed and what she's watching at the moment. You mentioned a few names just now, Tony Tipton Martin, Adrian Miller, who has a Adrian Miller has a forthcoming cookbook. I know he's written other books, but has a a barbecue book coming soon. Yeah, which I'm really excited about. There's a number of cookbook authors and folks who have forthcoming cookbooks who are in the pages of The Rise. And I'm just wondering about your perspective on, this is something we've talked about a lot on our show, but, but Black cooks, Black authors being underrepresented in the cookbook industry and food media industries specifically. And I think we're at a moment where there's sort of an increased um, attention being paid by cookbook publishing houses to Mm -hmm. Black voices. And we're seeing more deals for Black authors. But do you have any thoughts on sort of what the trajectory looks like for for Black authors in cookbook world, in food publishing worlds, or or another way to put that question too might be if there are specific folks we should be paying attention to um, for folks who yeah. want to learn more, like um, like some of the names you've mentioned. Yeah, well, you know, I have to be careful because I know sometimes I'm aware of projects, but they may not have been officially announced. Sure. Um, okay, and yeah. I don't I don't want to um, preempt you know anyone. But That's fair. yes, I mean, I think that I think what we will see, you know, of course, folks may know listening to your show that it usually takes a couple of years to turn a project around. And sometimes it can take longer, right. um, which is to say that the books that you're going to see in 2022 are, you know, getting turned in right now. Right. Like they're right. getting photographed, you know, maybe even as early as 2021 in some cases. So people are working very hard to fulfill this need and, you know, this this desire to see more, I use the term African diaspora to, you know, encapsulate a lot of different folks and stories. But I, I think you'll see more of a narrowing, you know, back to that point I made about the personal being that access to the universal. I think we'll start to understand more of, you know, the regional histories of many cuisines and many people's stories. I think you're going to see um, more embrace of people who describe themselves as, as immigrants and kind of merging their homeland with, you know, what, what they've come to make as home here. Um, Uh And I also think that, you know, hopefully we'll start to see 
we'll continue to see a certain, you know, I, I appreciate scholarship. I appreciate, you know, study, you know, and, th- and thoughtfulness, but at the same time, there's room for levity. There's room for exploration and experimentation. And sometimes what happens when you have something that you're holding so dear and so precious because it has been so poorly treated or so um, abused is that you're reticent to see it kind of like rift on, <laughs> right? Like, um, you know, if people are kind of familiar with conversations in, in jazz music, right? It's like you play the melody and then you improvise, right? Like you don't start off <laughs> just playing whatever the heck you want um, because you're trying to, but part of what you're trying to do is you're trying to level with the listener, right? You're trying to say, here's where I am, but here's where I'm going, or here's where I'm going to take you. Or like, um, And there's a reason why that happens with a thing called standards, right? You know, these things that everybody knows, these songs that everybody's familiar with. You're like, oh, that's, you know, that's the A train. I, you know, that, there was a riff on that, right? Like you, you recognize right. it. We have not seen these dishes, I'm speaking very generally, but you know, I would argue that we have not seen these dishes attributed correctly long enough to be playful without context. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I think that you'll see that continued struggle. Um, and sometimes that's a generational conversation. Sometimes, you know, it's an identity conversation and, you know, it keeps people up at night, right? I mean, I have a friend working on a comprehensive book about, you know, very large region, you know, and he's like, he's stressed, <laughs> right? Like yeah. he's, he's from that region, but he's like, oh my God, like, how do I, you know, and so he's interviewing all kinds of people. He's buying all kinds of old books. He's, tra- you know, he used to, well before he was traveling, right? And I, and my heart goes out to him because I know he's doing his best. And ultimately, what you need is a plurality of these conversations, right? You need fifty rises, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you, you need everyone in this book to have had an opportunity to say what they want to say with a real budget and a real marketing team and a real, you know, a real shot at getting this narrative out there. And I, I think that the future is as diverse as we are willing to accept it as being. And, you know, that means that readers, like, if you can afford to pre-order these books, you got to pre-order them, right? If you see someone you're interested in, you got to follow them on Instagram, you know, sign up for their yeah. newsletter. It's, it's a, it's a reciprocal act. It's not just one way. And, you know, when they, when these events happen, you know, through your library or through your local bookstores and please support your local bookstores, you, you got to attend and you're not in a position to, to spend the money, then, you know, perhaps, you know, you can amplify or share information in, in other ways, but it's encouraging more that creates more right <laughs> like yeah. it's a we live in a capitalist society ultimately like yeah. that's the gig so i hope you know i hope that's i mean i think that's where i think that's where we're going i think there's more and i think there are more voices on the way and I, you know, i'm certainly thankful to you know be working with some of them you know i hope you know you'll see in in, in coming years but it's a long road, but I think, you know, it's a tasty one. And it's also one where, you know, we're just going to continue to be peeling back the layers and learning and unlearning. And hopefully we can do it together. You know, I think it's more fun that way, usually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Osai. This was so great to have you. And thanks for joining us to talk today. Thank you for having me back. 
And I closed my conversation with Marcus by also taking a forward look and asking what advice he has for young folks hoping to make a name in the industry. We're a show on cookbooks, obviously, you've written a number of them, and um, including done some innovative things. Like I really loved the 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 work you did with Audible on like the digital cookbook, I guess we could call it um, sort of a hybrid of like a podcast and a cookbook, diving into Harlem and African American culinary history, really sort of exploring the medium there. We always like to ask authors, especially folks like you who have written a number of books, if there are other cookbook authors who have been particularly influential to you as you've become a, a cookbook author yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I would say for me, this is maybe 20 years ago, I sat, 15 years ago, I sat with Jessica Harris and Miss Leah Chase in New Orleans with Eric Lola's Eli as well, amazing writer, and just in awe of Miss Jessica's work, but also Leah's work, and how storytelling, writing, I think Jessica started, worked as an assistant to James Baldwin back in the days, and you know, they were they were sharing food stories, but they were sharing writing stories as well. and. Sure. At that point, I just finished my Aquavit cookbook, where it's a very good book. It's a very, I mean, it's a great cookbook, but yeah. I wasn't at the point where I could share stories the way they talked about stories and shared stories. I was just, I wasn't there yet. And yeah, I was just, that was your first book, right? Yeah. And I was just thinking about it like, wow, one day I want to be as fluent in storytelling. And because there was so much depth in their stories, and I was so lucky being on that dinner with them. And so that had a huge impact on me. Charlie Trotter's first cookbook. Yeah. I'd never yeah. seen food. And Charlie was one of my first mentors here in America. When the late Patrick Clark died, Charlie Trotter organized a cookbook that we all, a lot of chefs had to help out and print. So that had had huge impact on me because I remember getting the faxes from Charlie Trotter's like, recipe test these 15 dishes. And I was just, uh-huh. yes, yeah, chef, and you did it, right? Right. And so, but Charlie was though Chef Trotter was I learned a lot from him, but these books were I've never seen food being shot like that. I never seen the complexity of the food being dealt with in that way. And it was Amer an American chef, which was made it more rock and roll to me. You know, something mm-hmm. that I mean, I had great French cookbooks, of course, but it was still something that they do. Once I saw it from Chef Trotter, it was like, Whoa, this is something this is something I can relate to. There's many Many books that has been game changing uh, for me, but I would, yeah. if I would just tell talk about two uh, two chefs and stories and people. I would I talk about those two. Yeah. What advice do you give to young people who have a cookbook in their professional sites, particularly perhaps young people of color who might want to move into the culinary world, the restaurant industry, write a cookbook? Nothing beats do. Do it. Yeah. And, and document your journey, whether, I mean, and you, the beauty about young people now, you have so many different mediums. Record yourself. Start sure. your own podcast with your buddy. Document your journey. Tell your truth. Tell your story. And you will also see your own growth. I think it's an amazing time to be part of the American food scene. As challenging as it is right now for us in the restaurant industry, it's still a dynamic time in the food landscape. And it's broader and more diverse than ever. You know, um, I want to talk about one thing that, you know, as black people, we 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 entered food in a in a different way because we worked so much in the anonymous space based on just being black and how upside down the country 
saws. Right. So the fact that we haven't been able to vote until the six mid sixties. Yeah. And haven't really have access to capital to maybe like 20 years ago. So you can't just say, so it's harder for us to start our own publishing company or do you know what I mean? Or like yeah. very often amazing chefs when I came in the nineties for black chefs and then somewhere in the thirties, they have to change to become servers to make more money because they only became sous chefs. And there was always a Swiss or a French or another chef flown in to become the head chef. So we lost a whole generation of incredible chefs that never got the title, therefore never, you know, th that changes aspirations, desires, but also us as a profession, as a trajectory. So there's many reasons why, and they're all linked back to class, race, culture, and, and finance in many different ways. But I do think these are different times somewhat, and I do, I'm really inspired by this next wave. And for me, it was important in the rise also that we showed many different people. One of the most important person in the book is someone like Marvin Woods and yeah. Donna Pierce. You know, Marvin has done everything in the industry from cater, from working on the ship, from owning his own restaurant, from working in with a big corporate company. He really shows you what a career can look like. There's nothing in food that Marvin hasn't seen. And I've learned a ton from Marvin. Donna Pierce, you know, food editor at the Chicago Tribune, but a food scholar, that was just a smaller part of what her day job was, but she's an enormous amount of wealth of knowledge in terms of food. So there, there is these incredible gems of knowledge out there that some are very known and some are not, but it was important for, uh, that we, we told a vast varieties of stories of who we are. Yeah. I know you you have said before you often live by the phrase each one teach one. Mm -hmm. You are one of the most visible, uh, most well-known black chefs in the country. Do you think about your personal legacy often and what impact you're leaving on the culinary world? Yes, and no. I mean, yes in terms of it's I'm here because I had mentors that helped me and saw something in me that I didn't see or understand, you know, when I was a young kid. But it was my mentors who were like, no, we should push your markets, right? So if you've been raised like that with great, amazing mentors, uh, Leah helped me from the 90s. She's like, you need to go higher. You can do it. Patrick Clark, Charlie Trotter. So, of course, when you have been led by excellent mentors like that, you know, all the work at Red Rooster, the why we open Red Rooster, the work of CCAP, the work of the books is to inspire and aspire, like those intersections. Absolutely. And I, I think it's even more particular when you are a black chef, because you want to see a shift in terms of not just people working in the industry, but also senior management and ownership. And that shift is now starting to happen. Yeah. And so I think that as, as, as difficult it is in the restaurants today, some of the most important work is being done right now. You know, we, the fact that both you and me, we know maybe 15 inc incredible, you know, 20 incredible black chefs and, and culinarians. And then you add photographers to that. And then you add writers to that. And then you add stylists and, and, and so on to that. So, you know what I mean? Like the, it is a shift, you know, now um, Don Davis is the head of uh, Bon Appetit, you know, right. Num number two is Sonia Chopright. Like th those are massive shifts in our industry that that stuff just doesn't, just doesn't happen. It takes work to create those 
shifts. Yeah. And sometimes turmoil. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Often Ab- turmoil. Yeah. Often turmoil. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. so and and the now there is shift in, in personnel and now you can have another dialogue and so on, right? It, I don't see any change in anything that has happened easy, you know? Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Marcus. This was um, so great to talk to you and congratulations on your latest book. Thank you very much for having me and um, um, keep doing the great work. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so thrilled to talk with both Marcus Samuelson and Osai Andalin in this episode. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two featured recipes from The Rise that you can make at home. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes, and you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.